all it takes is a click to listen to RTI online. Get exercise for your finger and exercise for your mind at english.rti.org.tw. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Up ahead this hour, it's Lights, Camera, Asia, and In the Spotlight. But first, we take you over to Here in Taiwan. Welcome to Here in Taiwan. Today is Thursday, December 12th. It's 12-12 today. Joining me here in the studio today, we've got Jake Chen. Hello. And Shirley Lin. Hello. In just a moment, we'll be hearing about the unusual uses of Taiwan's emergency roadside telephones. Then the 40-year saga of a Taiwanese man who was abandoned abroad as a young man. And we'll be hearing also about how virtual reality is coming into the medical school system here in Taiwan. All that in just a moment. Please stick around. everyone's got a cell phone on them and it's pretty easy to get in touch with uh, emergency services if need be uh, but we still do just for safety's sake have emergency roadside telephones on our highways here they haven't been put to the uses you might expect people aren't calling for the reasons you might think yeah um, especially for this one uh, particular uh, highway it's the south link highway um, of the taitung county and uh, for the last two years there's been zero phone calls made on these emergency phones uh, meant for its use. Hopefully you know, that means there's been no emergencies. <laughs> well, yeah, true, true. And um, it, it is because of the fact that now with the use of mobile phones and everything, it's just more convenient and everything. But, right. you know, after some discussion, besides, you know, um, back in uh, about, what, seven, eight years ago, they actually put a budget of like 328000 U.S. dollars for um, installing these emergency phones. Right. And so recently they've been discussing about whether to took these phones down. But they've decided to keep them yeah, there. Yeah, if the mobile phone service gets knocked out for whatever reason. Exactly. We get earthquakes and landslides here all the time. Right, right. You never know what will happen. Yeah, because these phones are landlines and, you know, um, when when you don't get good reception in remote areas during a typhoon with your mobile phone, you at least can still use these phones. Sure. Yeah. And, um, and, but the, the funny thing is that they've had some really funny incidents with these phones because people are not using them for what they're meant to be. So they're being called... They're being used for other reasons? Yes. Like prank calls? Like, well, not well, not exactly prank calls, because I, I think these people are just not aware that these are not regular phone, you know, phones. Oh, they use them for personal phone calls? Uh, kind of. That'd be nice. Um, there was one old man. It turned out, they, they figured they couldn't figure out from the voice, it's an old man. He was actually calling um, to find his neighbor. And he was calling like, you know, it's such and such person you know, from such and such street. Is he there? You know, that kind of thing on the phone. And, and they had to this, explain. Yeah, this directs you to an emergency hotline, apparently. It's not yeah. just an ordinary... I know. So it's really funny. They had to take a whole long time to explain to the old man that it's not that kind of phone that he thought it was before he would hang up. Did they up. send someone to help? Because that sounds like someone who's confused. Like, yeah, they he have does. Signs of like dementia sounds like or something. He, yeah, he might need help. Probably. And you're on the by the way, these are like as we said on the side of a highway. So mm-hmm. uh, obviously, he's standing there with cars coming. Presumably, that can't yeah. be safe. That's true. That's true. I hope well, they sent someone to like check that out. Uh huh. 
Um, well, okay. So they uh, well anyway. Then there was another incident where uh, a, a person who was obviously drunk and he made, used a phone to ask for a cab service. Okay, but this and isn't then, a part of Taiwan <laughs> that's kind of a bit out of the way. I don't think I know, there are many many cabs funny, there. Right? And well, but that because, just sort yeah. of makes it sound like he's been drunk driving. What's he doing on the side of a highway? Hmm. But, but actually, he uh, was calling for a cab because he was on. He was he wants to rush to another party, like a K. TV party <laughs> on the highway. Really yeah. Yeah. How did it end up on the highway in the first place? That's what I'm he, saying. Like, I, I hope he wasn't driving and then right. so, decided to give up he, halfway through. Yeah. That he got lost or something, and then he said, "Oh, might as well just call a cab and decide to use that emergency phone." And then there were other incidents of, of similar nature. So it's just kind of really uh, kind of funny incidents among the people who actually are there. On you know on 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 service uh, to take up any of these phone calls because basically you don't have to dial anything you pick up the phone and there will be someone on the other end you know taking the call right so probably um, an emergency dispatcher of yeah, some sort yeah yeah so it's that's what it's meant for this but is anyway, a comedy movie waiting to happen you know isn't all, it? all the stories revolving around that yes. phone the misuse of the phone to be exact but of course I mean um, you know it, it actually costs quite a bit to uh, maintain these phones sure sure it right. costs them something like close to 26,000 US dollars per year so you know some people were saying let's take them down others were saying no we should keep them but, yeah. but I think um, like you said we got typhoons yes we got landslides I've seen a landslide landslides happen get, on a get highway stuck yeah um, so and you know if that knocks out your phone service it's good to know that you can reach someone that, that could be the difference between life and death for someone so that's exactly yeah. I say that's a worthwhile budget The details of how this uh, man came to be abandoned abroad as a young man are a bit sparse in this article, but it seems to have revolved around an argument at sea. It sounds like a very huh. almost romantic yeah. story. In our, his, but uh, this Taiwanese man in 1981 was, for some reason, at sea with his father, who was a Taiwanese sailor, and uh, they got into a fight, which this article describes as venomous. It doesn't say what the argument was about, but it was so bad that apparently the man sort of ran away and hid on a small Spanish island to avoid his father's efforts to find him. Since 1981? Yeah. yeah. Uh, That's close to 40 years ago. Almost yeah. 40 years. And wow. uh, so they what? became completely estranged with no means to reach one another. His father regretted this and tried to find him, but to no avail. And eventually the family itself back in Taiwan, the rest of them moved on with their lives, figuring they'd just never see him again. So they changed their phone number, they moved somewhere else. And and so this man built a new life for himself in, in Spain. Uh, he was 17 at the time. And in the 40 years since, he's pretty much almost completely forgotten how to speak Chinese. He's fluent in Spanish. And I, that's, I bet, yeah. Uh, he was now working apparently as a chef of some sort, a head chef at a restaurant. Uh, so he's kind of started his own life abroad. But uh, I think time heals all wounds and makes you kind of wonder, what if that hadn't happened? And uh, unfortunately, his father has since passed away. And mm. apparently it was a, one of his big regrets on his deathbed. But the, the man himself, who's now can, you know a couple decades older and wiser, decided to try and uh, reach out and see if he could try and do something to repair the rift. I mean, or at least find out what his family has been up to and let them know, hey, I'm still here. To reconnect and, and the whole thing? Yeah. Um, so he apparently came across a Taiwanese sailor three years ago now. 
and asked for help to get them uh, reunited. Uh, okay, like I said, he, they had to use a translator app because they couldn't really speak to one another. Um, and so uh, it says that they, you know, uh, couldn't really uh, figure out what had happened. Their house had been destroyed by a fire in, back in Taiwan in the meantime. All of his documents and stuff were therefore lost. He had no proof of his identity, like Taiwanese identity. And, uh, you know, like I said, their phone number wasn't in use. Somehow the, the sailor managed to uh, get through to them, though. It doesn't, again, the details are sparse in this story. Right. Uh, and so his sister for the past couple of years has been like trying to get help from the immigration office to get the documents so that he can come home visit, visit. on a regular basis yeah um and so i'm sure the immigration officer who heard this story really couldn't believe it will be skeptical a, yeah it's a bit dramatic no id and the guy doesn't speak chinese that's uh <laughs> right. but apparently yeah they even worked out that he is of amis descent so he's indigenous okay uh, and so they they know kind of who he is and uh it's been that was like a 2016 it looks like um, and that when they got that message back, the family back in Taiwan got a message from him. And now Peter Chen, who was the uh, immigration officer, he's all now running for office, it looks like, uh, uh, for a spot in the legislature. Uh, he's told Taiwan News that, uh, yeah, they're, they're trying to uh, get him here by the end of the year. So probably in the next couple days, even the first time in almost 40 years. Yeah. Wow. It'd be interesting to find out, you know, the kind of conversations that uh, were whatever little conversations he could have I, with I his family. You know? I, I wonder what, what, what the argument was about. How, how bad could it be that he had to run away just on the spot, you know? Not only run away, but he didn't stay in one place. It looked like he was, he knew his father would be back and didn't, he completely lost contact with him, like on purpose. He didn't. So he was determined to not. To not be found. Wow. And uh, apparently both sides regretted what had happened. Uh, like I said, too late for his father, which is a real shame. But mm, uh, that's unfortunate. I mean, he's got a family and a, a career as a in, chef in, in Spain, Spain okay. uh, on this island. And uh, it looks like in the Canaries. And uh, so I don't know. I mean, I guess it's kind of not happily ever after, but it's at least they found each other again. Right. We hear a lot about virtual reality, augmented reality, all the different kinds of reality these days. Uh, and it turns out that uh, in Taiwan, at least, virtual reality may soon be used in training for surgeons. I'm not sure how I feel about this. Yeah, uh, neither do I, because uh, one of the sort of the most widely used field for virtual VR and AR is gaming, as far as uh, I know. Right. Uh, but uh, it's good to see that uh, finally uh, they're putting the technology into you know use in other fields. So the National Defense uh, Medical Center, so the one uh, associated with the military, uh, recently has uh, begun working with HTC, so the li a local uh, electronics company and the leading uh, company in Taiwan, at least in VR and in AR, to build uh, both a software database and a sort of the environment that you could navigate in when you're wearing these VR goggles to train uh, up-and-coming uh, doctors and surgeons. So apparently they build this skeleton model and then you can, uh, much like how you use a little uh, Nintendo Wii controller, you can use a controller to oh. point to point and to grab the very various parts of you know, the human bones and organs 
uh, etc., uh, to help the surgeons to better uh, uh, identify these parts as part of the training. <laughs> Sorry, you just put this image into my head: a scalpel, and they hand you like a Wii, Wii mode. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You're not far off. You really are not far because this is a photo of the guy wearing the the, the goggles, and uh, you can see there's a remote in his hand. Well, thankfully, it's not real scalpels. The last thing we need is people who can't see where 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 they're going, wielding wielding uh, sharp uh, objects. Yeah, <laughs> in in a classroom that'll make a, a very bloody uh, field day. But uh, yeah, so. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure this is not the only part of their training, but uh, it is said to uh, improve efficiency and uh, the sort of the cost of this in the long run, according to the article, uh, is um, it, it the cost is lower and it's a lot more convenient because you don't have to bring in a real skeleton and you don't have to bring a whole class over to a different classroom, etc. This could happen in all in virtual reality. Sure. I still would prefer that they at least use like, if not a cadaver, like actual anatomically correct dummy so that they're not like... Yeah. I think that hands-on tactile, uh, um, you know, f- feel for a surgeon is something that you can't, you know, totally replace. It's mm. definitely something you want them to have experience with. Yeah. Right, and ample experience at that. So, uh, you know, I guess an interesting first step and, uh, you know, I'd be uh, interested to see how, how this goes in the future. Yeah, you know, I think we did a video recently, a news video about uh, they're, they're using virtual reality to train EMTs, so emergency responders, like, okay. to deal with a mass casualty situation. And Do they have similar trainings, like wearing... Uh, it looks like I'm not sure if they have goggles on or not. I don't. I think I remember that it was just like a screen, but uh, still, it's the same sort of thing, and you have to like, you know, uh, real use actual force to do CPR and stuff like that, and it it mimics oh, cool. real procedures, and that's a way of. Uh, you know, training them, I guess. Yeah. Like it or not, uh, that's sort of the way things are going. Uh, yeah. Especially if it saves money. Definitely. <laughs> Recognized at last, a 94-year-old architect here in Taiwan is set to win an Arts Achievement Award. Yes, we're talking about Wang Qiuhua, who was actually born in Beijing in 1925 and then became a resident in Taiwan since 1979. Now, she's going to be one of seven recipients of the National Award for Arts uh, in 2020. And the first woman, though, to win the biannual award for architecture hmm. since its inception in 1997. So the um, uh, the National Culture and Arts Foundation chairwoman, Lin Manli, she praised Wang for designs that emphasize a concern for humanism over aesthetics and craft and works that feature humanitarian values, respect for nature, and manifest a frank and down-to-earth architectural aesthetic. I wonder how in you her own words, show okay. value for humanity in architecture. Do well, we have any examples of her works? Okay, um, well, she actually uh, helped work on the main library of the Zhongyuan Christian University, mm-hmm. and also um, she's actually uh, been acclaimed for many works of modern libraries in Taiwan. That's, oh. That wasn't the only one. I guess that explains human values. Yeah. So she's actually dubbed the mother of Taiwan library architecture. Really? According to the foundation. Yes. And... Um, and anyway, um, but Wang was totally surprised. She just, uh, she just wasn't expecting it. She never thought she would win this award. Um, she went to the States from China in 1946 to study architecture at the University of Washington in Seattle and then studied a Master's of Architecture at Columbia University in New York. And then she worked with a couple of uh, American art- architects uh, back then. So she missed the revolution of 19... 19- 
And uh, worked on a number of projects besides the, you know, the Zhongyuan University um, Library. And um, so it, this award, by the way, is to honor outstanding artists in the fields of literature, visual arts, music, drama, dance, cinema, as well as architecture. Past recipients of, uh, of this award has been like Oscar-winning director Ang Lee and also... Oh. So this uh, is really prestigious. Yeah, yeah, it looks that way. As well as director Hou Xiaoxian, another uh, movie director. Very big And names. then uh, Cloudgate Dance Theater founder, Lin Huaimin. I recently retired, right? Yes, yeah, yes, th- that's these right. These are sort of right. the, the, the highest achievers in the world of art uh, yeah. uh, in Taiwan, at least. Anyway, so. this is a picture of her. She doesn't even look 94 you know, oh, uh, she looks like she's in early 80s at the most. Uh, I would say 70s. She really, yeah? okay. really managed to um, take good care of herself. Yeah. Very nice. Well, a happy piece of news. Uh, after two failed attempts, uh, Miaoli County in northern Taiwan has passed a bill making it the first administrative division here to have a law on the conservation of a single species. We're talking about the endangered leopard cat, which has sort of uh, been made into a mascot sort of uh, in recent years. Uh, I think it appeared, was it at the Taichung Flora Expo last year? Mm. Um, yeah, it appeared somewhere last year. They have different um, mascots you see around. Um, right. So they're trying to raise awareness. I mean, these are very endangered animals, fewer than 500, according to some estimates. And they kept um, on getting run over by cars. Yeah, yeah. In the news lately, it's yeah, pretty sad. I saw that. Um, I'm not sure if this bill will be able to help with that, but it does stipulate that the county government has to consult with experts on these leopard cats before it does a lot of things, including like developing any land larger than a single hectare. That's not a very huge area, <laughs> right? Or widening any road that's more than a kilometer long. So basically, that covers highways, I think, and. You know that sort of thing. So these sound more like preventative measures rather than you know active measures to preserve the endangered uh, leopard cats, right? Well, they're also you know those those are some practical measures to stop interfering with their habitat. Right. But it also okay. requires the county to do regular surveys on the the habitat of this animal, and they've got to do things with like uh, encourage things like patrols using government subsidies. No oh, good. Like sort of you know uh, patrolling. I don't know. I think you might scare the cats away if you're patrolling, but I guess. Uh, to stop people from accidentally hitting them or... Yeah, or I'd hope they hire the right people who knows how to do that properly. I mean, um, they, I mean, they do pretty well in, in this environment. In fact, most of them are found in the county, which is why this is especially significant. The bulk of the population they believe is there. So it's a, you know, they've bisected by roads, like you said, is their whole habitat uh, means that there are frequent roadkill incidents. I think that's probably why the widening of the road provision, especially, is going to be a big deal to try and keep their yeah. numbers at least stable. You Definitely. Know? Uh, we're doing something, at least. I don't know. Yeah, I, I sure hope the government put fundings in place and programs in place to sort of, uh, you know, give active measures so, you know, experts can get their hands on, on actually breeding and increasing the number in the future. Well, I guess the fact that we're more and more aware of this species than we were before uh, mm. is also helpful. Yeah. We know they're out there and that they need protection. I hope other counties follow because some of the neighboring areas 
although not where the bulk of them live. They have populations too, so yeah. they can get on board as well. Definitely. Well, that about wraps up today's edition of Here in Taiwan. I'm John Van Trieste. I'm Jake Chen. And I'm Shirley Lin. Please stay with us because coming up next, it's Lights, Camera, Asia and In the Spotlight. <laughs> Lights, Camera, Asia. A look at Asian culture and history through the lens of cinema. Hello and welcome to Lights, Camera, Asia. This week... We'll continue from where we left off last week and look at the story of Infernal Affairs, one of the most well-regarded gangster films to ever come out of Asia. Last week, we got to a point in the story where a drug transaction conducted by a triad gang led by seasoned gang boss Han Sen was sabotaged by the Hong Kong police. The police, on the other hand, managed to apprehend the gang members but failed to secure any evidence to press serious charges, since the gang members were tipped off just early enough so that they can dump all the drug in the sea. In the end, neither side got what they were really after, but one thing is crystal clear for both sides. There is an undercover embedded in both the police force and the gang from the opposite party, and neither party knows exactly who that mole is. Well, both are desperately trying to find out. Chief Inspector Huang has tightened his supervision within the police force. Whereas in the gang, Hansen has also tried a number of measures to fish out the mole. At one point, he even tells all of his gang members to fill out forms with their personal information, claiming that he will use it to buy everyone health insurance. But the gang members all know that their boss is trying to find out who the undercover is. Members of both organizations have become suspicious about each other. The air of distrust and paranoia begins to permeate both in the police station and in the gang's headquarters. The heads of both organizations, Chief Inspector Huang and Han of the Triad Gang, are also exhausting their ways and efforts to get the moles to show themselves. They both know that every day the issue isn't solved, their operations and probably their lives are at risk. But no one, not the gang members or the police officers, nor the police chief, nor the gang boss, feels as much pressure as the two undercover agents themselves. Because they both know that the moment they get exposed, they'd be killed immediately and future operations will likely be all jeopardized. Both Chen and Lao are tiptoeing their way around their daily tasks, not knowing what tomorrow's going to bring. One day, 
while Chen, the undercover officer in the Triad Gang, is having a conversation with Han, his boss in the gang, he catches a glimpse of a few audio cassette tapes in Han's drawer before he closes it. Days later, Chen finds that Han has suddenly headed out without telling anyone where he was headed to. He instinctively knows that this is probably his best chance of catching Han meeting with his mole inside the police force. So he makes up an excuse and tells other gang members that he's heading out to get a massage, and he follows Han's trail. As it turns out, Han heads into a movie theater and sits behind a guy wearing a baseball cap. The two seem to exchange a few words in darkness, and Han soon heads out. Chen spots the guy that Han was speaking to and follows him from far behind. On this side of the fence, Lao feels somebody on his tail shortly after he walks out of the theater. He tries to zigzag his way around and changes pace to get the follower to expose himself. It is a fast-paced and exhausting cat-and-mouse game, and neither side of the two can get a good look of one another despite their best efforts. The only thing that Chen gets out of this is that he sees Lao, the undercover in the police force, uh, with his habit of slapping the side of his leg with a piece of paper when he walks. Let's remember that little detail because it turns out to be a critical piece of information later on in the movie. The table soon turns when Chen himself later heads out to meet with Chief Inspector Huang, his supervisor in the police force and one of the only people who knows about his real identity. During their conversation, Chen tells Huang that Hansen seems to be strangely confident that he would be able to pin down the mole in the gang. And on the other hand, Chief Inspector himself still has no clue who the undercover criminal is in his police force. Huang even says at one point in the conversation that he is at the end of his wits and someone might end up being killed if this continues because things are really not looking like they're stacked in favor at this point. Little does he know just how prophetic he ends up being. When the pair is about to split, Chen gets a phone call from a fellow gang member. They tell him that Hansen has targeted the mole and is now about to make a move on him, and that he must return to the gang headquarters as soon as possible to join the operation. What is even more terrifying is that he and Chief Inspector Huang suddenly find that the building they're in is surrounded by gangsters, and some of them are already making their way up the stairs. The pair realize immediately that they'd both be dead if they are spotted together. So Huang asks Chen to leave the building by taking the window cleaning lift, and he himself would pretend to be a regular Joe and to exit by elevator. Both know that Huang has chosen a more dangerous route so Chen can have a better chance at leaving the building alive. But neither knows just what the consequence was going to be. Minutes later, when Chen manages to leave the building and is trying to circle his way around to the front entrance, someone drops from the sky and crushes the taxi that he just took. It's the dead body of Chief Inspector Huang. As it turns out, he was trying to make his way through the crowd 
but he got spotted by one of the gangsters and they pinned him down. Chen almost has an emotional breakdown when he spots the dead body of his former mentor. He doesn't know what to do and he tries to control his own emotions because he's standing right in the middle of a crowd who is gathering around the taxi. And just seconds later, other gang members join him and while they're blaming him to be late in this quote-unquote key operation, they soon begin opening fire to the police who also got on site. Chen is totally at a loss and he couldn't even pull his sidearm. One of his bodies pulled him inside a car and the two just drives away. It was during the ride that Chen learned what happened. The gang members pinned down Chief Inspector Huang and they beat him for a good 10 minutes to try to get him to reveal the identity of the mole. And he didn't give up Chen's name. Because he himself also knows that regardless of what he says and does, he was probably going to be killed. The car ride is arguably more emotionally taxing than anyone he's taken before. On the inside, Chen is really hurting. His most respected mentor, the guy who guided his journey in the police force since he was a young man, has been tortured and killed right in front of his face. And he understands more than anyone else that a guy practically gave up a better chance to live on just to cover him. But on the outside, he has to pretend that he doesn't really care because he's sitting right next to a fellow gang member. And suddenly, the car crashes into a pole and Chen was jolted and pulled back to reality. It is then he realized that the gang's friend of his has been driving him while he's all been blooded. He was shot up pretty bad during the gunfight and Chen just didn't spot the wound. Before he has his last breath, the friend in the gang tells Chen that uh, he didn't tell his boss that he went out to get a massage just to cover his trail. And then he passes away. Just within moments, Chen witnesses firsthand the deaths of two people who are close to him and who both were trying to help him. A police chief who is trying to cover his identity and a fellow gang member who didn't want to leak the real reason behind his absence to his boss. Now granted, the fellow gang member didn't suspect or know that he really is an undercover and that adds an extra layer of emotional complexity to the whole thing. A friend covers for him because he didn't want the gang boss to be suspicious of Chen because he was so convinced that Chen couldn't be that undercover cop. But as it turns out, Chen was. At this point, Chen really doesn't know how to act and how to deal with people anymore. Because while as an undercover agent embedded in a different organization, he constantly has to keep his guard up and he couldn't trust anybody, he realizes that there are people who trust him all along. And whether it's by decision or just by chance, more than one person gave their lives to cover for him, albeit for different reasons. We'll get more into his psyche and how this affects him in a character analysis in a later episode, but suffice to say that this adds a lot of complexity to a character who already is in a complex situation. When Chen returns to the gang headquarters later on, he finds that the entire gang is moving forward with another drug transaction. Because now that they believe they've killed Chi's Inspector Huang and uh, they probably get rid of whoever the mole might be, it is much, much safer to actually move forward with an operation of this scale. And it is as if things couldn't get any more complicated. Along the way, Chen gets a phone call 
and the caller ID shows the name of Chief Inspector Huang, but he's supposed to be dead at this point. Chen is hugely nervous as he picks up the phone, and a voice from the other end of the line asks him whether he is the one. He then hangs up, and then another phone call comes in. Now all he hears from the other side are gentle tapping on a hard surface. The person on the other end knows that Chen and Chief Inspector Huang have been keeping in touch with one another via Morse code, and he's tapping on the phone to send a series of coded messages to Chen, proving that he is actually someone from the police force. This is a hugely critical moment in Chen's career because he finally believes that there might be a chance that he could leave the gang and return to the police force, but he doesn't know whether that voice. That person who's tapping from the other side can't really be trusted. I'm gonna leave you all with this cliffhanger. Please stay tuned and tune in next week to Lights Camera Asia, and we'll conclude the story of Infernal Affairs. I'm Jake Chen, and I'll talk to you next week. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin, and today my guest is Candice Chen, who is the founder and CEO of Fluff. That's F L U V Fluff,、uh, which is a sharing economy, pet care, and foster care platform. So, well. I will have Candice explain all that to you eventually, but let's meet Candice. Hi, Candice. Hello. Hi, and I believe that、uh, you are from Taiwan. Except I was born in the states. I was born in South Carolina. Yeah, right, right, right. And then, like eight months ago, you came back to Taiwan. That's correct. Right now,、um, before Fluff, you actually had another business in the states that was, and which was selling、uh, dragon fruit juice called Pink Matter Juice Bar. Pink Matter Juice Bar. Yeah. Okay. How did that start? Let's start with that one. I'm so curious. Now, first of all, dragon fruit is not grown in the states, so ideally they were imported. Why dragon fruit of all things? I have to start from the very beginning. I yeah, worked、sure. at PepsiCo for a while as a manager, and I learned a lot being a manager at PepsiCo about how drinks are made, how consumer packaged goods are made. And I realized towards the end of my before I resigned at PepsiCo, I realized I wanted to create something healthy. <laughs> there are a、mm. lot of unhealthy snacks and drinks out there, and I started traveling. Actually, I resigned and started traveling. I came back to Taiwan to visit my family, and when I went to a night market in Taiwan, I tried dragon fruit juices. They sell that a lot at the night markets, and I just fell in love with it. It was really tasty and really healthy, and I thought, "Oh my gosh, this is it! Maybe Americans will like this." Then I went back to the states, thinking, "Okay, I'm gonna make this happen. I'm gonna bring this amazing product to the states." 
and get everyone to love it. We started doing R&D. I, I just hit up some college friends and started developing the products. We formed a company, did some market research. Also, you were not on this alone. You had some friends doing it with you. Yeah, I had some yeah. friends doing it with me. Although we kind of went part ways later on. In the beginning, they were helpful, but well, now, now I know how to pick partners and co-founders. <laughs> it was a really good learning experience. We knew our target market was not going to be Taiwanese because uh, it was going to be high-end, very pricey in the States. Right. Dragon foods are very hard to come by in the States, like you said earlier. We had to import it from all over the world. Guatemala. Yeah. You know, you could have picked any other fruit, but you chose dragon fruit and it wasn't even grown in the States. So you were taking a risk over this. I mean, it was your very first you know, startup. Yeah. And you chose something really, really challenging. Actually, because I saw an opportunity and... I had a lot of uh, friends, American friends, American-American friends that were really, really into exotic fruits, exotic, healthy foods that were pretty. Oh. Uh, just healthy things that, that are Instagrammable. Because of the rise of social media, people like to take pictures of their food. Over there in the States back then, everyone wanted to take pictures of their food and had something healthy. They wanted to have something healthy. You know, and I thought it's only Taiwanese people who love to take pictures of the food. It's everybody. It's everybody. It's all everybody. the world. Yeah. Yeah. It's everybody in this time of life. Yeah. It's <laughs> everyone loves taking pictures of food. Yeah. So acai was getting really popular and quinoa, all this really exotic imported superfoods. Wow. I, I don't think I even know the first one you just said. Acai, that, that's a really cool superfood. It's a, it's a type of berry. Oh, okay. That can only be found in Brazil. Yeah. And everyone was having, everyone in the States, they, they just loves acai bowl. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's, it got okay. so popular. Now I totally understand why you chose dragon fruit. Yes. Yeah. And for those people who probably don't know, it's, they come in two different colors and it's a very, gosh, how would you describe dragon fruit? Well, anyway, there's one that's really more like deep purple color. The other one is like white. And the deep purple color can really stain your clothes, by the way. Right. <laughs> but um, it's, uh, it's very, very, very flashy on the outside because it's got this fuchsia colored skin, very special, very colorful skin. And the inside is either, you know, purplish color or white and you know, with thousands of seeds, tiny, tiny seeds that you can swallow. But anyway, yeah, nice and good. Okay. <laughs> really nice and good. It's a, it's a superfood full of antioxidants and yeah, yeah, a that bunch too. of vitamins. Mm. The most important thing is it's pink. The purplish pink color actually caught everyone's eye in the States. In, yeah. in California, when we started selling it, dragon fruit just got accepted to be imported okay. by the government just a few years before we started the business. Oh, so okay. people were getting... They were still kind of unfamiliar with it, but mm -hmm. you could get it at high-end markets, high-end exotic markets. I see. And acai was kind of dying. It was, <laughs> it was trendy, but people were looking for the next thing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And I, That's a very Taipei thing, you know? 
things don't last very long. You mm. know, it's like yeah. a flash in a pan and then a gun and then the next thing comes up. And yeah, and Taiwanese people just love to get in lines for anything and everything that they find a line in. They don't know what they're in line in for, but they figure it must be good. You know? Oh, yeah. I, 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 I wait in line a lot in Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> That's the biggest difference. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so dragon fruit. And right. you love yourself, and so you started doing it. It was just plain dragon fruit juice, or do you add anything to it? Dragon fruit actually doesn't have much flavor. No, it isn't. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. it doesn't. It just looks pretty and it's healthy. Yeah. So we had to figure out a way to localize dragon fruit to Americans. And we did a lot of R&D, a lot of trying, and a lot of market research. We tried it with... Mango. People love mango. You mean People mix love. dragon fruit with mango? We, yeah. Okay. We mix dragon fruit hmm. with mango and some lemons, rose water, because it's also popular. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, we mixed it with, with a lot of really cool local local fruits. So we mixed the exotic fruit with local fruits that people okay. were familiar with in order to localize the products. You were really successful at the end, right? Rice. So we actually started selling the drinks in West Hollywood, mm-hmm. like Beverly Hills area. Uh huh. It's an area full. Oh, so eventually you moved to California. I actually was always in California. Oh, I was oh. born in South Carolina, but when I went back from Taiwan to study and work, I was in California. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I was in California for over 10 years. Wait, you were born in South Carolina, and then how old were you when you came back to Taiwan? I was about one. I was really young. Oh, all right. And then you were in Taiwan for elementary school Elementary school and some middle school years. Okay, so... I went over there when I was 14, 15. So that was when I moved to California. Right. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. You called it pink matter. Pink matter, because dragon fruit is pink. <laughs> right, pink matter. Nice name. Very catchy. So you offer different flavors, offer not different just flavors. one particular juice. How many different flavors did you have? I'm curious. We off, had... On your menu. Five. Five, okay. Five flavors. Yeah. And there were... One shop? Just one shop, or...? We had... A shop, and we actually sold to a lot of grocery stores as well. Wow. So we became a wholesaler, actually, in the end. (sighs) That was when I exited. We sold to a lot of natural food grocery stores in California. (sighs) And it just became really popular. First, we started a farmer's market. Uh And that was when we were doing our market research, wanting to see how people would react to our flavors. Sure. And... I remember our first month, we were giving out samples, and everyone on the streets, they were, some of them, they would say, oh my gosh, what is, what is this? This is so disgusting. <laughs> and, then, and then we started finding them, we were like, okay, we're doing something wrong. <laughs> okay, we're gonna, we're gonna fix something up. So we started mixing with mango, uh-huh. and we started mixing with lemon, honey, people like it sweet in I the know, States. I know, yeah. But they also want yeah. it to be healthy, it's, it's a complicated feeling. <sighs> So we added honey, so it sounds healthier. <laughs> added honey, people like people started saying, mm, "This is really good." <laughs> oh, is this pink natural? And I would tell them, "It's completely natural. Yeah, it is completely natural from this super cool exotic fruit called dragon fruit. Yeah, it's super healthy. It's a super food." Full of antioxidants and vitamins. They would love it. Yeah. Yeah. They were like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. 
we're can I get more more of this? Okay. People started ordering online, and then we started talking to grocery stores, and because. We were based in West Hollywood, Beverly Hills area. Celebrities started drinking it. Oh, really? There were so many stars from Netflix. You might have heard of some of them.、Uh, yeah. Even the Kardashian family—they've had it. <laughs> so, a lot of famous people have had our drinks, and they would post it on their social media.、Uh, kind of just went viral because of all the. We were lucky that we were at the. At a location full of celebrities, and that's the farmers market that they go to. Yeah, and. So、After、how many how many years did you have this business? For about a year and a half. That's it. Yeah. So wow, it just went booming. It just went、know? booming because the celebrities were very helpful. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. They、oh. were they were very they were willing to try new things and share、oh, it sure with all the fans. <laughs> all the fans would follow what they said. Yeah. Yeah, and you can still find it in California, all over California at natural food markets. It, it's ten dollars a bottle. It's kind of pricey. Yeah, but people still buy it. Yeah, yeah. Oh wow, that's great. Okay, so then you came back to Taiwan. But before you came back to Taiwan, you knew that you were going to start a pet kind of service. I actually didn't know. Okay, I didn't know. I came back to Taiwan just wanting to spend more time with my family. Sure. But I did know that I was going to start another business. Just I was looking for an idea. I was looking for an idea. Well, actually, because I always knew I was born to be an entrepreneur, <laughs> and I after I quit my job at PepsiCo, I that day I decided I was never gonna work for anyone again. So、uh. I already knew I was gonna start another business, and I truly loved being an entrepreneur when I built when back in the states when I built that dragon fruit business. It was amazing. Created. Something from nothing, and brought something from Taiwan to the states. I feel like I wanted to make an impact、mm-hmm. by being an entrepreneur, so I wanted to do the same thing back in Taiwan. I wanted to bring something helpful, amazing back from the states, and I, I was still looking for an idea.、Uh-huh. Yeah, I was still honest, still still looking for an idea. But I, there were so many things back in the states that I wish we had in Taiwan. Like oh, like lo- what? Like well, like a lot of really cool apps. <laughs> that,、oh. A lot of really cool apps.、Uh-huh. Yeah, a lot of tech-related stuff. Can you name one? Yeah, like ClassPass is a really awesome app that connects you with stu- yoga studios. I'm a, I'm a really, I love working out. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I, but I don't like memberships. Okay. So with ClassPass, I was able to. Book a boxing class just on the app. If I want to go to boxing class, just book it real quick on the app, and I can go in the afternoon. Or I want to go to a yoga stu- yoga class tomorrow. I can just book a yoga class real quick, and、right. it's always cheaper than the actual price because the spots that they have on the app are usually the leftover spots.、Oh, so it's okay. It's almost like sharing economy in a way. When、uh-huh. I mention. Our app about sharing economy.、Yeah. When you utilize all the resources, leftover resources, for a lower price, it's actually very good for the consumers. Also good for the business because、mm. they're otherwise they will have empty spots.、Mm. So that kind of sharing economy concept, I have always been in love with. Ah,、oh, all right. You know, actually, this thing is, is new to me. What is sharing economy? 
share, to, be, to be specific. Sharing economy is about sharing the resources you have okay. with other people. You can share it for profit, but it's always lower than the actual cost for the consumers. Just like Airbnb is Airbnb is a really good example of sharing economy. Oh, you have a room that 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 I understand. Yes, right. You have an extra <laughs> room at your house. Yeah, you can yeah rent out that rent that room for a certain amount of money. Right, make money. But that room is always cheaper than a hotel room. Yeah. So we're sharing our resources with other people, oh. which is a really really good way to utilize. All the resources you have to make extra money, and it's good for everyone. Great, it's a win-win for everyone. Well, what about fluff that we started off talking about? Well, we'll get to that in the next episode. Join me in in the spotlight to speak with Candace Chan again next week. I'm Shirley Lin. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kilohertz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kilohertz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kilohertz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 153. 320 kilohertz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to PO Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's PO Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. <laughs>